Redeemer family, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Psalm 51. We're going to spend uh, the summer in the Psalms, and so we're going to kick that off uh, this morning. I've entitled our time in God's Word, A King Returns to the King, the Anatomy of Repentance. This is God's Word. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know that my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you again for being a speaking God, and thank you, Lord, for the way that you meet us in your word. Your word is true. Your word is joy. Your word is sweet, even when affliction comes through the sweetness. Father, I pray above all things that you will make us a people that not only hear about repentance, but that we actually, by your grace and your spirit, live lives of repentance. Father, I thank you for uh, using broken vessels such as David, such as myself, such as every one of us in this room. Thank you for the mercy that is ours and the joy in the Lord that is ours. Father, I pray above all things that you will um, tend to the brokenhearted, that you will humble the prideful, and that you will glorify yourself through this means of grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All med school students uh, must take the class. It's the Surgical Anatomy 203 course. And it's not for the faint of heart. It's hands-on. And they must work with human cadavers. They must take their scalpels out and cut through skin to see the inner workings of the human body. They expose bones and nerves and ligaments and muscles 
organs, and tissue. By the time that they're done, there is no part of the cadaver's body that has been unexplored. But this surgery comes at a cost. It is estimated that 15 to 20 percent of medical school students experience a disturbance of sleep and a disturbance of eating habits. It's traumatic, but over time, their trauma pays dividends. It's good trauma. It pays dividends when you have to go to the surgical room and have cancer removed or ligaments repaired or organs transplanted. That class is difficult, and at the same time, it's a blessing. John Calvin calls the Psalms an anatomy of all parts of the human soul. The Psalms fillet open the soul and they show us what lurks inside of us underneath our smiles and underneath our words and the facades we wear. The Psalms show us our grief, our sorrow, our anger, our delight, our love, feelings of abandonment, lust, loneliness, despair, pride, beauty, longing, death. We could also add that the Psalms also give us an anatomy on God's heart. The Psalms reveal the texture and complexity and the layers to the heart of God. In one psalm, you encounter his holiness, and another his righteousness, and another his justice, and another his majesty, and another his patience, and another his providence, another why he's worthy of worship, another his might, another his wisdom, another his glory, another his faithfulness, another his love. If you want to see God flayed open, the psalms reveal his heart to you as well. This psalm was written by David after David had slept with Bathsheba, had her husband killed, and took her to be his wife. David, a king, walked away from the king of heaven. But to use language of our passage, David the king returns. He shoo, verse 13. In our passage, David dissects his own heart. It gives us an anatomy of repentance. This passage is a gift to us. We're like David. We might find ourselves far away from the Lord, doing and thinking the unthinkable and the unimaginable. And my guess is if you had asked David after he slayed the giant, After he unified the 12 tribes of Israel, after he recovered the Ark of the Covenant, after his military victories, after 2 Samuel 7, where the Lord comes to David and tells David, I will build you a house and your son will sit on the throne forever and his kingdom will endure forever, that that, that David would not have imagined that four chapters after hearing that, That blood is on his hand. A friend is dead. He has a a child with a woman, not his wife. Perhaps it was pride before the fall. 
Ralph Davis, in his commentary on 2 Samuel, says, David's failure reaches far beyond King David. It touches all professing servants of Christ. How suddenly and fatally any of us can fall. The hymn is correct. We are prone to wonder. Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. He says, he goes on to say, do not stammer about being a New Testament Christian. What difference does that make? What immunity does that give you if you begin to say, oh, but I could never and fill in the blank then you have already taken your first step in your fall. Don't ever be surprised at what you're capable of. The only safe ground is to pray, oh grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. This psalm isn't for David alone. It's for us. It helps us find our way home. Repentance and the sin that demands it can be traumatic. Being flayed open and laid bare before God in a world of lies and photoshopping is hard. But the one skilled in repenting will be blessed in their labors. And so a few things to note. First, that this is even in the Bible. Did you notice that this is written to the choir master? That means that if you were worshiping in Israel, you would sing this. I don't know if I want y'all singing my sin. You know, like, think about that. Hey, here, here is your pastor's sin. Now sing about it, right? For some reason, God is not ashamed to put even the hard things that we do in the scriptures. Secondly, notice in verse 12, David says, restore to me the joy of my salvation or your salvation. He doesn't pray to be saved again. Somehow, as a murderer and an adulterer and a thief, he is still God's child. And what he has lost is joy, not his salvation. And what he's praying for is joy, not to be saved again. That in and of itself is good news. So let's look at this anatomy of repentance. I want to work through four points. The first three are going to be expansive. And that last one it's going to be the conclusion. It's going to be the way that we're going to land the plane, all right? Just to give you, if you're watching the clock, I got you. I promise you, right? I know fast can get a little long. I know. And we got communion. I know. But just, there you go. There you go, Doc. First thing I want us to think about as we look at this text is that true repentance entails a profound awareness of our true sinful selves and the true majesty of God. That if those two things are not held together, then we should question if we're truly repenting. Now, I'm getting this from verses 3 through 6. You'll notice that the word that's most repeated in this psalm is actually me and my and I. Have mercy on me, 
Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know that my sin is ever before me against you and you only have I sinned. In other words, when you read this biblical repentance, the, the person that we need to be concerned most about in repentance is not our neighbor. And it's not what other people are doing, right? And so I get this, like when I'm talking with couples, that the hardest thing to do in a marriage is get both parties to think about them and what they're doing wrong. We oftentimes want to point the finger. Well, what she ain't doing and what he ain't doing. But David ain't bringing up Bathsheba. He's not bringing up Joab. David's gaze in this psalm is him and the Lord. It's me and my, me and my, me and my, me and my. Now, now, now here's the thing. I think there's a wordplay here. Don't turn to 2 Samuel 11 and 12 right now. I will ask you to at the end, but not right now. Trust me on this. So what, what was going on back there? David was supposed to be at war. Kings were supposed to be at war. David was at home. David is on his rooftop. He sees a woman bathing and she is told she is beautiful. And so David inquires, who is she? He discerns that this is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then it says he summoned her. And then it says he laid with her. And then we're told that they conceived. That idea of laying with and conceiving, they go together, particularly when you think about Adam. Adam knew his wife and they conceived. And so the synonym is used in 2 Samuel 11, where David lays with her and conceived. So there's a sense of, of, of deep knowledge, right? Well, then David's plan was to kill her husband off. Well, what did David do? It says, I know, right? Same Hebrew word, yada. I know where the valiant men are fighting. And therefore, Joab, I want you to put, da- put Uriah at the in most intense part of the battle. And then, you, and then Joab does, because Joab is a military strategist. He puts Uriah where he knows Uriah will get killed, right? So if you were to go read Second uh, Samuel 11, the knowing, intimate, deep knowledge laid down with her, knew this plan, knew where the valiant men were fighting, and constructed it. His attention is bent on evil. He is now knowing what is evil. Now, that's a different place than where he is right here. Look at what David says he knows. Same word. Look at verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And I think we ought to carry that verb, I know, down through verse 6. I know my transgression is before me. I know against you when you only have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words. I know I was brought forth in iniquity. I know in sin that my mother conceived me. I know you delight in truth and in the inward being, right? So this is a different David. His knowing now is not what is illicit. His knowing is not towards scheming. His knowing is not taking this other woman who's not his wife. His knowledge here is around his sinfulness and around the majesty of God. That is what he knows now. And what does he say about himself? He uses three different words to describe him. He's evil, but he uses sin, he uses iniquity, and he uses transgression. And these are three different ways to say what David is about to say. 
Sin is missing the mark. The mark of God's truth, his law, his likeness. He says, God, I know you delight in truth in the inward being, but I miss the mark. His transgression, the Hebrew word there is pesha. If you were away from your home and somebody came in and, and stole something, they would be called a thief. But if your neighbor or relative stole something, it would not be thievery. It would be pesha. Why? Because that's covenantal unfaithfulness. You have betrayed trust. You have done worse than stealing from a stranger. You have stolen from someone you proclaim to love. And so when David says that, he's actually saying, I betray covenant. The covenant between that man and his wife. My covenant as king over Israel to lead by example. My covenant with my God who is forever faithful. And then he uses this other word, right? Iniquity. It means to be crooked. David is admitting that he is unloyal. He is trampled over covenants. He's crooked and he has fallen short. And then he says, I know I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin that my mother conceived me. He is not blaming his mom and his father, Jesse, for a sin. What he's actually doing is talking about original sin that has been imputed to him through our union with Adam. And David can slay giants, but he is no match for indwelling sin. It has conquered him. And what does he know about God? He says, against you and you only have I sinned. And a better translation might be against you. Above all have I sinned. You see, David did sin against Bathsheba. He hurt her. He did violate her. He sinned against her husband. He had him killed. He sinned against Israel. Our sin hurts people. And David is not saying my sin was only against God. I think what he's saying is well before we sin against people, the first person we sin against is the Lord Almighty. And so when we honor and respect and reverence him vertically, then we will treat image bearers with dignity and shalom. But, but when this gets off up here, then this will be off down here. That's what David is saying. He's saying against you and you first have I done this. Think about Potiphar's wife who came at Joseph. What did Joseph say? My master has not withheld anything from me except you. How could I do this wicked and vile thing against my God? You catch that? This is a different David. Previously, he knew, he knew her and her body and his plan. But now he knows himself. It reminds me of Job when Job says, Lord, I knew you. I heard of you in the hearing of the ear, but now I see you. In other words, what's happening is through David's fall, 
He thought sin was like this big, and now it's like this. He thought the majesty of God was like this, and now it's like this. And his fall, like falling, is what God uses to show him him. And fall, the fall is what God uses to show David God. This is the beginning of biblical repentance. It's coming to this grips with this fact that we are more sinful than we had ever imagined. And God is more holy and righteous and pure than your mind ever conceived. And when those two things come together and fall upon our hearts, you start having the seed of biblical repentance. It will not happen if you think you're just a little bad. And it will not happen if you think God is just a little majestic, that these things have to come crashing down upon us. And so David says, now I know. I know. I didn't know. But now I do. This is the seed of true repentance. And so the question then is, how does this happen? How do we get to this place where these two things come crashing down at the same time upon us? Because sin by its nature, it blinds, it entangles, it ensnares, and it renders us powerless. How? Which is our second point. There is an initiator of true repentance whom we cooperate with. That's the second point. There is an initiator of true repentance that we cooperate with. Let me set the table again. It's 2 Samuel 11 and 12. David saw, David summoned, David slept with her, David sent her back. Sometime later, we don't know, she shows back up and says, David, I'm pregnant. And so David puts a plan in action. I know what I'll do. This is before sonograms, y'all. This is not sort of in our day and age where we can tell you when you conceived and when you're going to have a baby. This is like way before all of that. And so David's plan was this. We're going to do a Maury Povich on him. I'm going to go tell her husband to come from the field. And maybe if she and her husband are intimate, maybe they Maybe he thinks he conceives and maybe he goes back to war and then eight and a half months later, not eight months later, there's a child and maybe Uriah is like, oh, this is my child. That is David's plan. His plan is to pass this child off on Uriah. The problem with that is Uriah is a noble man. He will not sleep with his own wife while his men are at war. And so when he would not sleep with his own wife while his men are at war, guess what David does? Now we have to kill him. And so David does. Joab put him where we know they're fighting the hardest. And Uriah is killed. And when Uriah is killed, Bathsheba grieves And then David summons her and takes her to be his wife. Now, if you were a Jew, you probably would have looked at David with some honor. Oh, he's doing the noble thing. He's taking care of the orphan. He's taking care of the widow. 
That's, that's the plan. His plan, right, is to cover it up and cover it up and cover it up. So how do you get to Psalm 51 where he says, I know, I know, I know, I know. How do you get there? You know how you get there? God gets there. The last phrase in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel is this thing David did displeased the Lord. And verse 12 of, of, of that chapter, verse 1, Chapter 12, verse 1, so the Lord sent to David, Nathan the prophet. And Nathan showed up and told the parable of a rich man and a poor man. And the poor man had one ewe lamb, and the rich man had flocks and herds. And a visitor came, and so the rich man could have, he could have slayed one of his cattle or his, his animals. Instead, he took the one ewe lamb that the poor man had, took his lamb, sacrificed it, fed this man, and then David gets angry. And then Nathan says, you're the man. And then you get what David says. I have sinned against the Lord. Did you notice what happened there? David wasn't repenting. He comes to Psalm 51 because the Lord is relentless. Because the Lord goes after him. Because the Lord sends the prophet. In other words, he understands that he would have covered and covered and covered and covered and killed and hidden until the Lord says, no more hiding. Who is initiating repentance? That's why Hosea 2 says, I will allure her. I will bring her back. I will remove her gods. I will make you lie down in safety. This is why our confession calls repentance a grace of God. He's the initiator. Everything we do is in response to what he is up to. And so the question becomes, what are the means of grace by which God pursues wayward kings and queens to bring us back to himself, to lavish us with himself? So how does God do that? First, God uses earthly consequences. That child would not live. Uriah would not lay. The sword would not leave David's kingdom. And so when David writes verse 4, you are justified in your judgments. He's actually saying, Lord, what you're doing to me, I see. You're not letting me hide. And that is loving. Getting caught getting found out what you do in darkness coming to light that is a loving thing in the hands of a relentless God and then you get these inner feelings the the inner turmoil that that David feels and look I know we live in an age where people are too easily guided by feelings I feel like a woman trapped in a man's body and because I feel this, I must conform to that. That's the world we live in. I feel like shooting up a school and killing teachers and children because I was bullied. And so I go get an AR weapon and I slaughter children and teachers. Because I feel this, I go do it. David saw Bathsheba 
felt that as a king, he could have her. And he took her. And he was wrong. That's one thing I came across this week. Emotions can be great servants, but they are terrible masters. They're terrible at deciding truth. As if your emotions and my emotions are not affected by the fall. Our emotions are affected by the fall. We desire things we ought not desire, and we under-desire things that we ought to desire more. And so to make a statement that my feelings are the governor of truth, that's the air that we breathe in, and it is not right. However, emotions can serve us if they are aligning with God's word. You see, there's a Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who indwells God's people. And his ministry is inside of you. It's mysterious. And he can be grieved. Ephesians 4.30. He bears witness not to your minds, but to your souls and the deepest part of who you are that were children of God. And so rather than letting emotions and feelings be our masters, they are serving and should serve the Lord of truth. And when they are in step with truth, then they're good. And when they're not, it's bad. And so we can ask questions like, what are they saying to me? And and what are they saying about me? And how does this align with God's truth? And so you'll notice that David feels dirty in verse 7. You'll notice that his bones are broken in verse 8. You'll notice that his joy in the Lord is gone. This is God using his inner emotions to draw him. Another means at God's disposal is other saints. When did David repent? It was when Nathan was sent to him, not a verse before it. David wrote this entire psalm. Look at the first words, and this is actually in the Bible. This is not like the bold print above Psalm 51. When you look right next to Psalm 51, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him, that's actually in your Bibles. And so when was Psalm 51 penned? It was penned when the Lord sent the prophet. And this isn't Matthew 18. There's a conflict. Why? Because Uriah is dead. Who's going to plead his case? Bathsheba is a widow. How is her testimony alone going to stand in court? And so the Lord does what the Lord does. I will send a prophet, someone who can reason with David, someone from me to confront him. One of God's greatest gifts to you on the path of repentance is going to be other people who speak the truth in love to you. 
It's also God's word. Look at verse four. You are justified in your words. What words are David talking about? He could be talking about the Bible, but more than likely he's talking about the words that came out of Nathan's mouth that find themselves in the Bible. And so I'm no prophet, right? I'm no apostle, but I will tell you, we stand on the shoulders of the prophets and the apostles. And to the degree that we exegete and care and love the word, the word of God will be God's tool to bring his people back. This is what God does to initiate repentance. Consequences. People. The word, inner turmoil. Repentance is the grace of God. There is work for us to do, to humble ourselves, to confess our sin, to turn from it, to turn to him, to put sin to death. But it is all in response to the work that he is doing. In John O's book, We Will Go On, he writes a, he writes a, a story about what he learned from a tuna fish sandwich. And his wife's name is Chandra. And uh, Chandra was making her famous tuna fish. And he says, we like our tuna fish not out of the cans. There's too much juice at the bottom. He said, we bougie. We like the tuna fish out the packets. Then he said, I saw, he said, I saw Chandra. She got those green onions and celery and relish and salt and pepper and crackers and bread. And then she reached for those three magical ingredients that I'm not going to tell you. So I'm going to redact it out of my book. And then she reached for mayonnaise. He says, I hate mayonnaise. I hate the texture of mayonnaise. I hate the smell of mayonnaise. I hate the look of mayonnaise. And she said, baby, don't mess up this good thing we got going on. And his wife's reply to him was, boy, when you become a top chef. (laughs) And then she said, child, let me do my thing. Let me worry about what's going on in this here kitchen. You, You ain't even a cook like that. Then she told me what you view as bad and would rather avoid mayo is necessary to make the dish that you enjoy. It's okay to not like mayo alone, but wait until you see it when it combines with other ingredients. John, let me cook. And I put the sandwich in my mouth and my palate started singing hallelujahs. (laughs) And then she said, I told you so. The moral of the story, God is the master chef in the kitchen, and he is mixing up ingredients to bring you to himself, and being confronted by somebody might not feel good, and being convicted in the word might not feel good, and being caught might not feel good, but it is good. When God is the chef and God is at work, true repentance will have some things mixed in it that are painful. And God is mixing together something beautiful. 
What's the deepest desire of true repentance? That's the third point. It's God and his perfect gifts and graces. I don't know about you, man, but I fumble at repentance. I vacillate between this is worldly sorrow and like this is real. This is faux repentance and this is the real deal. In false repentance, there is no desire to render new obedience. In false repentance, we want the consequences of our sin to go away without letting the sin go. In false repentance, we might feel sorrow, but we lack any plan or course of action to live differently. John the Baptist says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And the tax collector says, what does that mean? He says, stop taking more than you ought. There is no cutting off arms and gouging out eyes, no course of action to disrupt the cycle that God is disrupting with false repentance. In false repentance, there is no desire to repair, if possible, what we've destroyed. Zacchaeus to Jesus, Lord, if I have defrauded anyone, I have restored it fourfold. And Jesus says, salvation has come today. Why? Because you're doing more than talking about repenting. This is not where David is. Out of the gates, the first thing out of his mouth, and this is in the imperative. This is a command. He is begging, Lord, have mercy on me. According to your steadfast love, your hesit, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop, make me white as snow, let me hear joy and gladness, hide your face from my sins, create in me a clean heart, and renew a right spirit within me. This is not false repentance. Not just your mercy, but your abundant mercy. Not just your love, but your steadfast love, your hesed, your covenantal, never letting go, relentless, immovable, irreversible, limitless affection and loyalty that is always towards me. He pleads for cleansing the, the, the sit in the tub with the cap full of bleach and the brown Lysol because you've been outside and you're stinking kind of cleansing. This is the cleansing that David wants. But it's not just an exterior washing. He wants to be white as snow. And this is ironic for a man living in Jerusalem. Snow is used 24 times in the entire Bible. Mountains 335, the sea 420. In David's mind, the few times he's probably seen snow, he says, that's it. I want that. I want that whiteness. I want that right there, that purity that I've seen a few times. That's what I want. He says, purge me with hyssop. I want joy, the joy of being forgiven. Verse 10, I want a pure heart and a steadfast spirit. Make me on a heart level steady. Verse 12, I want a willing spirit. Lord, I want to want to want you. I want to want to obey you. Not just in outward conduct, but in the heart. Look at verse 13. I, along with others, will turn, will will shoo, will return to you, forsaking all things. This is not false repentance. David wants all of this, and it can only be found in God. Suppose, all right, so we got a lot of people sending people to the moon right now, right? Suppose someone came to you and says, I'll send you anywhere in the galaxy to live for free on me. 
You're like, whoa, I can go see this place and live there. The only condition is this. You have to be able to live there. And so you start to make a list. Okay, I need oxygen. Check. I need water. Check. I need a food source. Check. I need the weather not to burn me up to a crisp and not to freeze me to an icicle. I need other people, right, right? Guess what place you're describing when you list all of your needs? The one planet you're on right now. When David makes this list of what he needs, mercy, a new heart, white as snow, a willing spirit, you know what list he's making? You only get this in Jesus. You can't separate the graces David is after from the source. If you have the source, you have the graces. And if you have the graces, you have the source. And so what David wants above all things in true repentance is God. I want you more than anything. And here's the proof. Look at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. That word for create is the Hebrew word bara. The same words you get in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And here's the thing. You never, ever, ever find humans baraing in the Old Testament. We take secondary things and fashion them, but bara, create, is never a sign to something people do. That's reserved for Yahweh alone. And so what David is actually asking for is miracle. Miracle. Do something in my heart that I can't do. Do something in my heart that my best friend can't do. Do something in my heart that my pastor can't do. Do something in my heart that my husband can't do. Do something in my heart that my wife can't do. No one can do this but you. And this is what David is after. When we've lost our way, what we truly want is Christ. Pleasures are at his hand, right and left forevermore. Mercy flows from his hands. Atonement flows from his blood. Chastisement that brings us peace flows from his cross. Where do we get the hope of the new heart, the heart of stone removed? Where do we get the promise of a new spirit, a new willing spirit that takes residence inside of us? All of this flows out of the person and work of Jesus. And so true repentance has at its core a longing for Jesus and for his goodness and for his presence and for his joy and for his atoning works accrue to us. You don't outgrow the gospel, Redeemer. 
You don't outgrow it. Which leads us to our last point. And it's quick. What's the fruit of repentance? When we're repentant, what's the result? And I want to start with God. What does God do? It says the broken and contrite heart. He will not turn away. Did you catch that? The broken and contrite heart, he will never drive you away. The sacrifice that he is after is a bruised and battered and broken heart placed in his care. If you go back and look at 2 Samuel 12, when Nathan confronts David, David confesses, I have sinned against God. And the moment David says, I have sinned, you know what the Lord tells David? God has put away your sin. You will not die because of this. Where did God put David's sin? He put him on David's son. And David's son would die in David's place, King Jesus. And David himself would live. And there were consequences. But the Bible never, ever mentions David's sin again. In Hebrews 11, do you want to know who shows up in the hall of faith? Hebrews eleven thirty two. 32. David's name is there. And not his sin. What separated his sin from him? The work of Jesus. God will not turn away the broken in heart. What's David's response I return to you. I'll lead by example. Many will turn to you. David sings. He says, let this mouth sing of your praises. David teaches. I will teach transgressors your way. Israel is blessed. Verse 18, do good to Israel. And I would add personal obedience that you get another scene. And it's just like the scene with Bathsheba, a beautiful woman and David, except you get it in first Kings one, four, a young woman was beautiful and she was of service to the king and she attended the king, but the king knew her not. Same situation different outcome because God changed his heart. Are you bruised by sin? Have you discovered that you're far worse than you've thought? That God is far more holy than you have imagined? Has God used his word and people and consequences and turmoil in your heart to draw you back? Have you longed for cleansing and joy, a new heart Have you found it in Christ alone? Yes, you are more sinful than you thought. But you're more loved and more forgiven than you have imagined. You are clean. He remembers it no more. Come to him. Sing of him. Instruct others. Crucify the flesh and its passions by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we bless you, and we ask that you will make us a repentant people. 
We pray, Lord, for those who are broken. Might today be a day where the news of Jesus is sweet. We pray for those of us who have lost our way. Might today be a day that you bring us home. We pray for those in the future. We have no idea what tomorrow or next year will hold. But I pray that by your spirit, you will sear these words upon our hearts. That if we find ourselves away from you, that we will come home and experience your grace and your goodness. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.